It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, that is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, you can type in one of those two coordinates and then listen on your device of choice along with ELMNTFM and listen 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We also want to welcome people that are listening on other radio stations that now carry a moment of truth. And you can also listen on your personal favorite podcast platform uh, and or our SoundCloud, which you can find at Element FM as well. We appreciate you all. We also appreciate the guests on the show today. I have with me Shin Imai, and he is currently a professor emeritus at Osgood Hall Law School at York University, which is my old school. He has published in the areas of Indigenous rights, immigration law, clinical legal education, and conflicts between Indigenous communities and Canadian mining companies. And he was awarded the Excellence in Teaching Award at the law school in 2004, 2007, and the University-Wide Teaching Award in 2010. Also joining us is Sarah Calgrove, and she is an adjunct professor at Ryerson Law School. She holds an LLM from the University of Victoria. She previously worked as a lawyer for Indigenous governments across Canada. Canada in constitutional business, environment, and self-government matters, among others. She previously was uh, provided legal support to Indigenous organizations, NGOs, and government, and she also writes, uh, mediates, and volunteers for the Justice and Corporate Accountability Project. So it's a pleasure to have both Sarah and Shin on the show, and we are talking to them because they also co-authored an article in the conversation entitled, Investors Are Increasingly Shunning mining companies that violate human rights. And when I saw that, I thought, this sounds like an interesting topic. So I wanted to welcome both Shin and Sarah to the show. Thanks, David. Yeah. It's a pleasure to have you both here. And now you, you start the article talking about investors in Canada and the uh, Tahoe resources that uh, paid because they didn't pay attention, I guess, to or disclose information about something that was going on in uh, Escobar in a mine in Guatemala a few years back. Um, yeah. So the, the point of the example we begin with, um, the Tahoe company, is that uh, so Tahoe is a Canadian company um, operating in Guatemala, very large silver deposit there um, at the Escobar mine. And it was trying to develop this resource over about a five to 10 years, uh, probably longer, but it was sort of the point person on that resource for many years. And there was a lot of opposition. There was local opposition. There was indigenous opposition. Um, There was some violence surrounding the opposition to the development of the mine. And um, eventually a court case did in fact close the mine down. And of course the stocks plummeted. Mm. Um, And the reason for the closure was, was this opposition. And in particular, the failure to carry out adequate indigenous uh, consultation Mm. um, and ultimately really practically to, to find a way to reach consent with the indigenous people and local communities. So it's just one example of what the article is looking at, which is that there's a real cost to companies and to investors of not finding um, ways to work with communities and reaching a point of consent before moving forward. And that when they don't disclose this to their shareholders, um, the shareholders aren't getting all of the information that they need in order to make good financial decisions. 
I, I get the sense, though, that that wasn't always the case, uh, that investors weren't necessarily either looking that closely at it or weren't paying attention to it or weren't aware of it or um, were in, in the past more interested in the bottom line and their, their, their investment and returns. Yeah, I, uh, I think um, uh, that uh, certainly what's true in the, the history of uh, uh, the extractive industries in Latin America and Canada across the world. It's been uh, that, uh, uh, you know, these companies will just go in and uh, if there's a rock in the way, uh, they'll move it. If there's a mountain, uh, they'll get rid of it. If there's mm. trees in the way, they'll cut it down. And mm-hmm. if there's people in the way, they just move them out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's a growing recognition of uh, uh, rights of Indigenous people and, uh, of course, the cost to the environment of these projects. And so uh, there's more and more investors that are uh, concerned about this. And the old uh, school investors, I think, uh, are more and more looking like dinosaurs. Mm. So uh, th- there has been a change. And I, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that uh, the law in Canada is keeping up with this change. Right. And we're going we're gonna to talk to that uh, idea, of course, because that's where this comes into uh, the focus of what we're talking about, is about making sure that these this information is disclosed and not just relying on the companies uh, saying what they they say themselves. For instance, giving going back to that Tahoe Resources example, um, the, the, you have in quotes in that, that article that, oh, communities love us. <laughs> so, um, obviously, that wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah, in the case of Shaho, um, they were making those statements around, I believe it was 2015, and there had been plebiscites. So in, in Guatemala, uh, local municipalities are enabled by statute, so by law, to hold these non-binding plebiscites just to give their opinion on matters. And a number of the, the, pleb- the neighboring communities, including um, the Chinka people who are the local in- Indigenous people there held plebiscites and came out against the mine. Um, and uh, Tahoe was actually in court trying to get those plebiscites uh, invalidated mm. uh, while or, or shortly before making these statements that communities um, love them. And there were additionally uh, several instances of violence leading up to that point in time. Um, in particular, on the way home from one of these plebiscites, four of the uh, Chinka, so the indigenous community leaders from the Chinka parliament were um, around that time abducted one of them on the way home from the plebiscite itself, and he showed up dead the next day. Mm. Um, and that was sort of the first of a few, I believe there were three deaths of community leaders um, who opposed the mine in the region. And there was no, you know, there were no suspects in those cases. Um, but um, but Tahoe, when it was asked for more information by the Norwegian government who had investments in the in the company, sort of came up with the line that there was no problem, there was no death at all. And mm. um, meanwhile, the, that wasn't the uh, what the United Nations had found. Mm. Um, right. And do you think that this example that you gave with Tahoe has had ripple effects within the community of these companies that are now looking at this a little more closely, either either in terms of their own investments and where they're where they're doing these things and how they're going about these things to make sure that that they won't run into these issues, or do you think that this is a one-off that it's it's still too early in the change to see a, a grand change happening, Shin? Yeah, it's it's a bit 
difficult to answer that uh, question uh, because, uh, of course, we haven't looked at every company mm. and what they're, uh, what they're doing. I can say anecdotally that um, in the last uh, uh, eight, nine years, if you go to any website of any mining company, there's, it's just going to be full of all the wonderful things they're doing for the community mm. and happy pictures of kids, you know, and, and uh, everything's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think they, they realize they have to uh, at least say they're addressing these issues. Whether, in fact, uh, they are uh, disclosing, in effect, actually uh, disclosing these these issues more now or not i i don't know i mean sarah maybe you can just talk about the uh, the pebble mine case which uh was just two this is a couple of years ago and this yeah. is a, a canadian mm. company a couple of years ago a canadian company trying to uh, uh build and do a project in alaska so that's this is very recent sarah okay. can tell you the details Great. of that Sure. Yeah, um, this would be the Northern Dynasty Minerals Company, which is another Canadian company operating extraterritorially, so outside the country in Alaska and around Bristol Bay. Um, and that's another situation where, I mean, the short story is that uh, they, they had a, a fantastic deposit of, um, I believe there's gold and um, um copper and a few other really precious metals in there and it was located in a watershed at the in the banks of the uh, of the ocean there where we've got the largest freshwater sorry the largest sockeye salmon run left in the world a mm. billion dollar industry yearly and there's significant concerns about the impact of the mine on the local economy and in particular on the indigenous way of life um and the company held this line that uh, that everything was fine and just failed to disclose a few key points of opposition, mainly that the local indigenous communities, pretty much Alaska wide, had come out against the uh, project and the local indigenous, it's called the uh, Bristol Bay um Bristol Bay Native Corporation uh, was in fact a landowner in the area and the project, the Pebble Mine project actually needed to cross the land in order to get power in and they just, they needed consent for that because they, the um, Bristol Bay Native Corporation was an owner of the land they couldn't cross the land without consent, um, they couldn't get consent and so that was going to be a huge hurdle to the project, not to mention just the, the widespread opposition um, and those were things that weren't disclosed um, that project was we, we think finally sort of has been brought to a halt just this past year, mm. like a few months ago, mm. um, through the environmental assessment process. Um, but certainly the, there's definitely evidence there that the company was not, uh, was just was not voluntarily disclosing this kind of information to shareholders. Mm. Right. JCAP, the Justice and Corporate Accountability Project um, filed a complaint in, I think it was 2007, that complaint, Shin. Uh, sorry, 2017? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and um, the share price dropped after that when the sort of the lack of local support and the fact that they couldn't cross the land they needed to cross was made uh, public to shareholders through the, the complaint process of going to the securities regulator and saying, here are some problems, we'd like you to look into them, and sort of that information going out to the shareholders. Um, and the, the price dropped after that, and it never recovered. Mm. Hmm. Uh, how how much do you think that the current 
situation in the world during the last year has affected things. Last couple of years, I guess, really. You have, you know, prior to COVID-19 taking over the world, we, we had the youth stepping forward in a big way to talk about the environment and coming forward and saying, you know, something has to be done. Things have to change. Otherwise, there will not be a, a world here for us in the future. It's one of the reasons why I believe uh, that we need to pay more attention to what's going on. Do you think that these kind of things have had an effect on on the market and, and on investors and, and, and change, making them be more aware about what's going on? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, you raise a really good uh, point about the environment. Um, the uh, There's been, uh, just in the the investor world, there's been this big push to require companies to uh, disclose the impact mm. of uh, climate change on their operations. Mm. Of course, these you know uh, companies just uh, they they resist yep. uh, doing that. They don't want to disclose that because they want people to invest without knowing uh, you know what's happening. But for example. Um, uh, uh, you know, a company that uh, is dependent on fossil fuel, mm. heavily dependent on fossil mm. fuel, uh, there's a big movement that they have to disclose that they're dependent on fossil fuel. And as uh, fossil fuel becomes unpopular, it's going to affect their business. So uh, these disclosure things, they don't punish anybody. Uh, they don't, uh, there's no remedy if somebody is harmed. Mm. But uh, it's really just, you know, to uh, let investors uh, uh, understand what the situation is. And so uh, you, you t- the, the climate change, you're talking about the youth and kind of this, um, this recognition that we are in, a, in climate change uh, situation has uh, uh, recently in Ontario, um, uh, a task force has recommended that it, made, that it be made mandatory that uh, these uh, uh, the impact of climate change be disclosed. Now, what's that have to do with the kind of work that uh, JCAP does? Uh, well, we you know we work with humans, with uh, uh, human rights defenders, uh, and uh, the the link is it's the indigenous people uh, who are protecting the environment. Mm. So if if there are human rights uh, situations that uh, are a social conflict, uh, assassinations, those kind of things, the company has to disclose that as well, because it's the uh, you know an attack on the humans who are defending the environment is an attack on the environment. So that's the uh, I think an important link, and of course, no company wants to uh, disclose that there's uh, these kind of things associated mm-hmm. with them. Uh, but investors care, and mm-hmm. that's what we found. As I said before, um, uh, a study, in, uh, or maybe I haven't said it yet, but uh, <laughs> a study uh, by a prof uh, academics at Oxford University mm. found that the they, they looked at about 300 environmental defenders who had been assassinated, I think over the last 10 years or so. And uh, they found that the average hit on the the market cap that is the value of the company, the average hit was $100 million. So uh, we're saying to the uh, securities, uh, to the government and the securities industry, uh, you know, you may be trying to protect the companies, 
you may not think it's important or you, you may be hoping that the issue will go away, but not for the investors. And the job of this legislation, of the Securities Commission, is to protect investors. That's their job. So they should do their job. Another thing that, so in addition to the idea of um, sort of climate, uh, reporting on on climate risks to investors, um, one of the things that, so the the article that we wrote was sort of based on um, an empirical study that the Justice Justice and Corporate Accountability Project did, um, examining some complaints it had made to security regulators over Mm. the previous seven, eight years, Mm -hmm. um, complaining to security regulators in order to try to make an impact in that way was was sort of a new method. And and so there's been six complaints um, testing what's possible. And and what's actually happened isn't that the security security regulators are investigating, but that shareholders are noticing the complaints. And after the complaints are made and the information is made public, so the information is disclosed to them, not by the company, as you would expect it to be, but by this independent organization doing its own work in order to make sure that people know about these issues, the share prices drop. Um, And you see that in cases of, uh, of, of, so... Um, cases of violence. Um, so as Shin just described, um, you also see it just in cases where there's a lack of consent, a lack of social license in the surrounding community overall, and in particular, a lack of consent with Indigenous communities. Um, and with respect to Indigenous consent, I think there's also right now a growing recognition that it's an important thing. Um, It is part of our international legal system that before a project goes ahead that could have an adverse impact on Aboriginal rights and interests, um, there needs to be consent. It's part of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. That isn't the law that's implemented in most countries, but it is sort of the standard that we internationally recognize. And when you when you're in a business context, it's also, we see in these cases, the standard that's relevant on the ground, because ultimately local people and in particular indigenous people do have an inherent right um, based on their own humanity and their own cultures to, you know, to stand up and push back and the exercise of that, right, whether and not and to whatever extent it is recognized by the local legal system, it can be very costly um, to a company that's trying to operate without consent. Um, And so I think we're seeing increasing recognition both on a normative level that it's a good thing to get consent, it should happen. And also on a practical level, that it's actually very difficult to move forward and costly to move forward without consent. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guests here on the show today are Shin Imai and also Sarah Colgrove. They are talking to us about an article they co-authored in the conversation entitled, Investors Are Increasingly Shunning Mining Companies That Violate Human Rights. As you were talking there, I get the sense that there's a bigger picture here, obviously, that we are we are talking about and, and how changes are taking place, I guess, both on a micro and macro level um, that is slowly trying to catch up with the world in terms of a, a better way of doing things. It, it sounds like that's where this is trying to go. The, there are attempts being made, but but these things, as you say, they're not they're not 
in law yet. So companies are not being uh, forced by law to disclose these things at this point in time. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it, that's a problem with the company. I think it's a problem with our, uh, with, with our courts in Canada. They're behind. Mm. You know, the, uh, I think Sarah mentioned that it, uh, the, the law in a lot of these com- countries mm. do not require Indigenous yep. consent. Right. And that's certainly the truth uh, in, in Canada. Like, there's lots of court cases that say, well, you should consult, but mm-hmm. Indigenous people do not have a veto power. So that's the law in Canada. Right. And there's, there's a, a, a lot of, um, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that, that word consultation and how that gets interpreted um, and what, again, companies and or governments uh, say they have consulted and what that really means uh, in terms of actual consultation. The, right. the task force that you also mentioned um, addresses that it, 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 it doesn't address human rights or indigenous concerns. Yeah, so that's that's the problem, uh, is that, and it doesn't, so they're behind. Right. I mean, they are not reflecting the reality of what's happening on the ground, mm-hmm. and so they aren't serving investors. But uh, the fact, you know, th- th- in terms of the consent as opposed to the consult, consent is important to the business, okay? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the law says. Right. If there is no indigenous consent, it impacts the business. And uh, the, the perhaps the best example I can give is something called the equator principles. Uh, now, these this the equator principles association is just an association of banks, 116 of the biggest financial institutions in the world. So these are all the banks in Canada, Bank of America, Barclays, all the banks from China, like everywhere in the world. And they have a set of principles called the equator principles. And they say they will not lend money to any project unless there's indigenous consent. They know that that consent is what matters to make business go ahead. Mm -hmm. And so... Courts in Canada, the government in Canada, the securities regulators in Canada, they are, they are all uh, behind and they're too influenced by the mining industry that lobby them mm. all the time saying, no, 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 there's no problem. Mm. There's just, you know, a few isolated incidents. We don't need legislation. Mm. So that's right. the problem. Well, that, what else would they say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> To speak just to the task force. Um, so the task force has been set up by Ontario to look at Ontario regulation of securities. And securities regulation is like, it's a pretty small part of this issue, really. I mean, we're looking at, you know, the idea of consent and Indigenous rights. And we're looking at, you know, violence in, uh, you know, sometimes arising in human rights abuses. But part of the legal framework is also the investments that go into the companies that get involved in these kinds of disputes. And so securities regulation deals with the investments and deals with um, how much information the investors get when they decide to buy shares. And so right now there's a task force in Ontario that's looking at whether they should modernize their laws a little bit. Mm. And as, as Shin mentioned, they're looking in particular at whether they should bring um, climate disclosure in. And, and there's also an opportunity here, I think, to bring in consent disclosure and to bring in, you know, maybe 
um, disclosure around if there are any human rights abuses in the area and and what the social license is. And the more of that information is on the table, you know, it doesn't have a direct impact on the people who are being affected on the ground, but it opens up um, more of an opportunity for shareholders to make choices about where they want to put their money, mm-hmm. whether it's for ideological or for practical reasons. Mm. It, well, it also sounds like that even though there is no laws at this point in time for this disclosure, when found out, investors are making, it sounds like, uh, from the examples you're giving, they're, they're making those choices on behalf of the, the company to say, we don't agree with what you're doing here. You need to change. And and there's, so they're putting pressure on the companies in that regard because it, it's hurting them at the bottom line by their share prices dropping. That's right. Yeah, we saw that um, the the Justice and Corporate Accountability um, empirical uh, data. So it found the share prices drop. It found um, there was a lawsuit against Tahoe by shareholders for a failure mm. to disclose. Um, there was a divestment by a large. I think it was oh, there was a large uh, a large public fund for all of the same reasons. Um, and so this this information does seem relevant to investors. And the issue is that there's also a principle in securities law that investors are required by law to have relevant information. It's called material information. Mm. Um, But companies seem to choose not to think these kinds of issues are material to the investors. And what we think we're seeing is that this, this, this information is very material to investors. Mm. Um, But, but companies aren't making the choice to see it that way. And so it might require a stronger hand. It might require the legislature stepping in, the Ontario Security Commission stepping in and saying, okay, in particular, you know, you need to give them relevant information, material information, and in particular information about consent because you don't seem to be volunteering that information on your own. Do you think this I, this this example you gave about Tahoe and the investors stepping up to to, to make that change and, and have the the price drop of the shares um, is that is this something that is isolated to Canada? Are we seeing this on a broader scale globally? Uh, yeah, it's um, you know I just uh, we just generally deal with mining companies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like that's that's where we have our expertise mm-hmm. so i can't speak across the board okay about uh uh impacts in, in mm. other industries right. in terms of mining canada is the world's biggest jurisdiction for mining mm-hmm. overseas well, uh overseas like we okay. dominate the mining industry right. i mean there's you know british companies and american companies but they're small compared to the Canadian companies. Right. And so, and if we're seeing a trend in Canada about investors bucking mm-hmm. uh, kind of mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the, the, the line given to them by mm-hmm. the mining companies, then uh, that, that's a worldwide trend. Right. The other thing you know, I wanted to mention is that I, I just did another interview with someone by the name of Leanne Keddy on a, a similar idea, and that is that companies uh, need to uh, d- have different kind of uh, books being done. Uh, a sustainable accountability uh, is what she was referring to in her article, which I thought was really interesting and something that sounds very similar to this about uh, being sustainably accountable. And that that should be something also that companies should be doing. 
Uh, Shannon, Sarah, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us and uh, and share about your article that uh, you co-authored in the conversation entitled Investors Are Increasingly Shunning Mining Companies That Violate Human Rights. And people can go to the conversation and check that article out. We want to thank you once again, and we look forward to maybe uh, talking with you again in the future about this. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure, David. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. They are the voices of Shin Imai and Sarah Colgrove. They co-authored an article in the conversation entitled Investors are Increasingly Shunning Mining Companies that Violate Human Rights. Shin is currently a professor emeritus at Osgoode Law School at York University, and Sarah Colgrove is an adjunct professor at Ryerson Law School. That's this part of the program. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM, and you might also be listening to Moment of Truth on uh, another radio station that is carrying Moment of Truth at this time. We want to welcome those listeners, or if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform and or on our SoundCloud. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Lenore Newman. She's the director of the Food and Agricultural Institute at the University of the Fraser Valley and holds a Canada Research Chair in food security and the environment she's a member of the royal society of canada's new college lenore researches agriculture and land use policy agricultural technology and bioengineering in the food system and she's a member of the bc premier's food security task force her latest book entitled lost feast was a taste canada silver medal winner and the grand prize winner of the canadian science writers award also joining us is evan fraser he's the director of errol food institute and professor in the Department of Geography, Environment, and Geomatics at the University of Guelph. And he started thinking about agriculture and food systems while spending summers working on his grandfather's father's fruit farm in the Niagara area. He holds degrees in forestry, anthropology, agriculture at the at UBC and U of T. And since graduating, he worked in a policy institute with the Honorable David Lloyd Axworthy and began his academic career in 2003 in the UK, where he worked on farming and climate change at the University of Leeds. He's the author of over 100 scientific papers or book and book chapters of these topics. He's raised over $100 million in research grants and has written about 50 op-eds for publication. His book, entitled Uncertain Harvest, The Future of Food on a Warming Planet, was published in 2020. And they have co-authored an article in the conversation entitled Three Technologies Poised to Change Food and the Planet. So it's a pleasure to welcome to the show Evan Fraser, and Lenore Newman. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks, David. This is great. Well, it's a pleasure to have you both here and your article, Three Technologies Poised to Change Food and the Planet. And so that article, of course, is something, I guess, near and dear to everyone. And, and it's interesting and I guess comes at, a, at an interesting time when we are on the what feels like the cusp of so many changes. As you point out in your article, and I've interviewed some other people about this, the amount of the earth that is being used for grazing animals that we eat is enormous. Uh, the offshoot of the carbon foot footprint, the the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere because of all the changes that we have implemented on this planet in 
less than I guess a hundred years or a hundred years of so or so uh, has has really had a huge effect on on this planet that we need to survive. Anyone want to answer that? <laughs> something to that? Sorry, was there a question there? <laughs> no, I agree with rambling. everything you said, David. <laughs> yes, me too, for sure. Um, I guess I would say yeah, and I I think we really are at a bit of a turning point now. I'm. I'm always a little bit of the West Coast California optimist, mm. and uh, I really do think that we can build a much better food system, but it's going to look very different than the food system we have now. Mm. A lot less animals and a lot less land intensive, and there's going to be more robots. And uh, I think that's sort of a future we see emerging very quickly. Really? We see this happening and emerging quickly? I think so. And, you know, I'll toss over to Evan for his thoughts mm. on that, too. But I think the real story in the next few decades is going to be plant-based automation and a lot of uh, land rewilding and uh, really trying to concentrate on year-round production anywhere, anytime, any crop, wherever possible. And we're already nearly to that future. It is uh, emerging very quickly, I think. Okay. Evan? Yeah, well, I mean, I just would like to agree with what you folks have said. I mean, the same technologies that created the internet and are changing medicine allowed for, uh, you know, multiple vaccines for a novel virus to be discovered in less than a year. Mm. Um, these are unprecedented technologies that we're talking about, and they are only now being applied to food and farming systems. And, uh, and, and, and let, let's, let me be clear, whether or not you strike, take a sort of a technologically optimistic tone, like, like Lenore and I typically <laughs> do, or whether or not this strikes you as a terrifying example of scientific hubris and technological overreach i don't i don't think whether whether you think this is a good thing or a bad thing actually matters because we are at the moment of a massive scale disruption in terms of technologies it's a little bit like um uh you know a hundred and some years ago thinking should i invest in you know the blacksmithing industry and the horse industry or should i invest in cars and and really you know cars made horses become obsolete very mm. very quickly over mm. the course of a generation and i think we're at that kind of level of scale uh, of disruption at this moment with regard to the food system writ large. Mm. And uh, it's up to people like Lenore and me and consumers and policymakers to decide the direction that this change happens in, not whether the change happens. Mm. Right. And those three technologies that you refer to in the, the article that you wrote, vertical, cellular, and precision agriculture. That's correct. And I mean, there's a lot of different forces coming together, um, you know, progress in biology and genomics and breeding and, uh, and robotics automation. But I think those three really do encapsulate a kind of coherent agricultural system that can produce uh, right across all the major food groups. And uh, there are various stages. I mean, certainly precision agriculture is already rolling out around the world. And uh, if we look at vertical, it's a bit more um, in the development stage, although starting to scale rapidly. And if we look at cellular agriculture, it was science fiction, maybe even 10 years ago, and now it is uh, starting to come to market. So 
I think where we are seeing those three technologies, they really represent what's happening in the sector. Mm. So so maybe for the sake of the the listeners who aren't as in the weeds as uh, as Lenore and and, and me, maybe we should just quickly define or give examples of what we mean by those three, David. And and so by precision agriculture, I I guess the easiest thing to do would be to imagine a, a, a robotic tractor driving autonomously through a field. And because of GPS and artificial intelligence, it knows quote unquote knows if you can use that word right and talking about a tractor but it knows where it is in the field and it knows when it's on a say a a droughted you know a a well-drained or a droughty part of the field and puts a drought tolerance seed in and gives it the right amount of fertilizer and it knows when it's in a wet part of the field and it puts a uh maybe a a a slightly more um moisture intensive variety in at that moment and gives it the right amount of fertilizer so that's what we mean by precision agriculture and really it's all about um it's all about uh, conventional big ag so really where we see precision agriculture having the biggest impacts is probably wheat and canola and uh, soybeans and things like that. Vertical farming would be horticulture, fruits and vegetables, mostly right now green leafy vegetables. And we're talking about producing plants inside where, where you use LED lights and hydroponic solutions in, say, a great big office tower in downtown Singapore. And that would be mm-hmm. sort of the, the fruits and vegetables start part of the of, of the food system. And then cellular agriculture would be producing uh, molecules or or products that look a whole lot like animal protein, but they actually come out of of a laboratory instead of an animal. Mm. And uh, and that's what we mean by cellular agriculture. Right. And we have seen some of that. I've seen some articles and I've I've, uh, actually seen some uh, documentaries on this kind of thing that are actually happening that is true and uh this uh i mean 2020 will be remembered for many things Mm. but uh, (laughs) it's also the year that cellular agricultural products came onto market in a big way Mm. and so uh, we now can uh, if we were in the u.s in many states we could walk into a store and buy ice cream made with dairy proteins that did not come from a cow. They were instead cultured using a fermentation process, much like we make beer. And also it is the year that um, a restaurant first offered uh, cellular grown meat to the public in Singapore. And chicken, uh, I believe, right, Lenore? Yeah, it is. It is. It's uh, chicken prepared three ways. And, uh, if we could get to Singapore, which of course we can't, uh, we could walk in and order it. And uh, that is a monumentous event in uh, agricultural history. And uh, it's uh, when you're living through it, it's a little hard to even see how incredibly disruptive this technology is. But we could see in a, I'm, I remember a few years ago, I told Evan, I thought in 50 years, uh, I believe I said of our meat would be produced without animals. And I'm going to stick with that. I think I'm right still. Wow. Well, that would certainly help in many ways, in, certainly in, in terms of the footprint that is being used currently for grazing animals and, and the farms that are, are housing these animals. As we know, uh, they're, they're taking up huge amounts of land. And we, I've heard some estimates about the future, if we don't do something about this, that the amount of land and the amount of space that would be needed, the amount of food that would re- be required to feed these animals. So let's, 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 break this, let's break this apart. So at a global level, 
David, you're absolutely right that agriculture as a whole makes up about, say, well, it's, it, it is the world's largest user of land. Mm. It is the largest user of fresh water and, um, and produces about a quarter or a third of the world's greenhouse gases. Mm. And within the food system, livestock agriculture, either because of the land used for grazing animals or because of the land used to produce feed for animals mm. in, in more concentrated environments, uh, is the largest share of that. Mm. So livestock is the largest share of one of the biggest contributors and a billion people in the world currently depend on livestock agriculture for their livelihoods many of whom are quite poor so not only are we talking about farm families in canada but we're talking about small-scale farmers in africa that depend on animal agriculture so i i feel that we're facing what might be a, a bit of a wicked problem in that we know at a global level we need to reduce our environmental footprint of our food system and the easiest way of doing that is to reduce our meat consumption. And I completely buy that argument. I also know that this is a wrenching disruption we're talking about here mm. for a billion people. Mm. And, and managing that transition is going to be one of the key policy and societal challenges of the next generation. Mm. Now, what, what would be some of the other benefits of going in this direction? One of the things I think about are, are just the, the chemicals that are being used. How would that reduce that? Would it not? Or maybe eliminate it? Yes. And there's a number of issues that come up. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fisherman's daughter. Mm. I grew up in the slaughter industry. I, in most rooms, have killed more animals than anyone else, unless there's a chicken farmer there. Mm. And, you know, having grown up in this industry, I can say people, people when given an option, are going to move to it. And um, animal welfare is a huge issue. And, you know, if we look at the average broiler chicken, it's uh, killed at six weeks. And those six weeks are highly unpleasant. And mm. at any one point, there's about 60 to 80 billion broiler chickens on Earth. Uh, that, by the way, is the largest population of any bird species ever mm. in the history of the planet. Mm. And what's going to happen is when there is an absolutely equivalent, cheaper, better option, uh, ethics are definitely going to play a role. We also get rid of a really dangerous industry from the point of view of the producer, especially slaughterhouse workers. They suffer a lot of injuries. They suffer a lot of mental distress. They're mm. poorly paid. Mm. And um, what we know is they basically, we offsource the violence of the food system to them. Mm. And we could move away from that too. And then the land saving is incredible. I mean, it's... Um, we, we probably could easily rewild 60% of the world's farmland overnight. Well, not overnight, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. I think looking back on this 20 years from now, we're going to be amazed at how profound a change it was. I also think it's completely inevitable. The technology is too good. It simply will roll out. And like Evan says, though, we have to be ready for that. And there's going to be massive disruption in mm. rural communities yep. that needs to be addressed. Sure. So let, let me just jump in, if you don't mind, David, because there's an interesting nuance to one of the things that Lenore just said. And and I'd, I'd hate for your listeners to think that as the, the jobs are lost... Uh, is these technologies develop that those jobs that there are no longer any jobs and actually we know that 
across the world, but also in Canada, that the ag food sector is an engine of job creation. And they're very different jobs. And so as jobs are lost in one part of the sector, we're actually gaining more better jobs uh, in other parts of the sector. And, mm. and I could cite you example after example of, of companies that they're employing less say grape pickers for our or for a vineyard but they've actually increased their payroll because they're now hiring more sommeliers and data technicians and robot engineers and uh, marketing people and advertising people mm. and so there's growth in the job market but it's different jobs so sure. for me this is a question really of managing the transition and how do you embark from a policy level on on helping you know, enable or protect or uh, work with the rural communities where these things are actually playing out in real time to manage the sort of the changing job expectations and what are the new skills. And it's, it's that kind of conversation. It's not like there's a, the robots are coming for the jobs. The robots are changing the jobs. Right. Understood. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those three, uh, two coordinates, and then as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also be listening on one of your favorite podcast platforms or on our Element FM SoundCloud. And you might also be listening on another radio station that is now carrying Moment of Truth, and we welcome welcome you all. I also welcome the guests on the show today. And uh, as I mentioned off the top of the show with me is Dr. Eleanor Newman. She is director of the Food and Agricultural Institute at the University of Fraser Valley. Also with us is Evan Fraser. He's the director of the Aero Food Industry and professor in the Department of Geography, Environment and Geomatics at the University of Guelph. And their article that they co-authored in the conversation is three technologies Technologies poised to change food and the planet. And off the top, again, we talked about that a little bit. And uh, they, uh, the three that we were talking about are vertical, cellular, and precision agriculture. And Evan, you mentioned something about a downtown building, uh, you know, a vertical building housing this vertical farming in, in you know, a downtown city. And, and I thought, wow, uh, you know, I wonder if that might come to pass sooner than we think, given the nature of COVID-19 and how it is changing how we might be using our spaces in the future, because I know a lot of businesses are uh, either reducing their their footprint of their offices dramatically, and people are working from home, and there's going to be a lot of empty space around, and it could be used for farming. Who knows? Well, I mean... I think a bunch of stuff has gone on pre-COVID. One, you know, climate change and mm. the world's population growth mm. all leading to this concern that we need to radically change the nature of our food systems. Mm. Plus the advent of these new technologies, which is making people think, oh, this is sort of the next big wave of innovation and digital innovation will be in agriculture and food. Those were existing pre-COVID and they were kind of small smoldering embers uh, in sort of in terms of say policymakers or investors' minds. Uh, COVID for Partly the reason you just said, but for a whole bunch of other reasons, has just thrown, I would say, a whole lot of gasoline on those embers. And now we've got a roaring fire of people wanting to talk about um, ag technology, mm. innovation, and how we can use technology to shrink the food system's impact on the environment. What do you think, Lenore? Yeah, totally agree. It uh Really, COVID didn't break the food system, which shows the food system is pretty resilient. We kept food on shelves around the world. 
but it did show the weaknesses. Mm. It showed that moving food extremely long distances is intrinsically a little fragile. And it showed that labor is a pinch point Mm -hmm. right through the whole system. And so there is suddenly a giant interest in producing more closer to market and also to automating as much of the food system as possible, partly for food safety as well and worker safety. So I think Evan's exactly right. The conversation, I would say, probably got advanced about five years in one year Mm. uh, just because food was suddenly front and center. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I know we're in the throes of this COVID-19 situation, and it's not a good one. But I, I do hear, just like you just mentioned, there are some benefits that have started to, to show themselves because of the situation we've been thrown in that could be of benefit in the long run to us. Yep, and I think, like, let's just take the example of vertical farming or, or, or producing horticultural products or fruits and vegetables in con- controlled environment and settings in the downtowns of cities. And, you know, there's a lot of science that still needs to happen. We don't want to be coming across as naive about these technologies. For instance, right now, vertical farming works really well for green leafy vegetables. Mm -hmm. But if you want anything other than a salad, you're going to have to look to other sources. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things that's happening right now is we're talking about doing a lot of plant breeding to bring strawberries inside. And just in the last year, there have been some major mega deals announced between conventional strawberry producers and big vertical farming companies to create varieties of strawberries that would be sort of optimized for these indoor conditions. So I, as Lenore just said, I think we've taken what would have take what would have unfolded in a five to maybe even 10 year horizon. And we've accelerated those timelines radically because money is suddenly going, we need to invest in this space uh, because of COVID. Mm. And COVID has focused people's attention. So we're seeing resources pour into this space, which is in the pro- in the, going to overcome some of these scientific and technical hurdles that we're currently keeping, um, keeping, say, vertical farming from being reaching its full potential. Right. You know, as I was reading the article, and it, and it was almost within the first paragraph or so, something came to mind for me. And given now that I understand more about both of your backgrounds and where you have both come from, I couldn't help but think about this small scale thing that you talked about and and how, you know, even given this last year, um, how many more people because they were working from home or they were at home, uh, a lot more gardens were being planted, we heard about and those kind of things that were happening. I, I, I feel that it would be of benefit for all of us to do more of that anyway. Um, you know, maybe in the northern climates, like we are limited to the amount of time that we can plant outside and, and have those gardens that, that produce food for us. But um, I also think that, you know, I know I know there's some people that don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to they don't want to do those kind of things. But I think there's a benefit and there's a benefit to us as a person to get out. And, and Evan, I'm sure you can attest to this working on on the farm, you know, in Niagara, uh, just getting out there with nature and spending some time with it is is, is a benefit in its own. Well, I would I would cut you off there and say I think it's a dangerous road to go down. Oh, and. I am always very nervous of anyone that suggests the solution to salvation is to go back to the farm. And I think there's something mystical about food production that actually sometimes stands in the way of the best sustainability 
solutions in that if if you were talking to me and said the same thing about coal mining, everyone would think you were completely insane. If you said, you know, the family should go and do a little coal mining today because, you know, that'll get us back to our roots. <laughs> if people want to grow food, that's great. And it's good. It's a hobby. It's wonderful. But I do think we can over romanticize that. And the truth is the sustainable numbers around growing your garden are terrible. Mm. They're awful compared to the industrial system. And so nothing against it. I do it myself to a small degree, Mm -hmm. but I do think we really have to watch out for that romanticism, especially in North America, because it's a North American thing, Mm. this romanticizing of small-scale agriculture, and it will hold us back in comparison to the rest of the world. What are we talking about then in your article that talks to some degree about small-scale agriculture? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to strike a slightly more reconciliatory tone and then Lenore, and this is something that she and I debate actively all the time. I, I'm I'm perfectly happy to say that it's not a this or a that. It's it's a this and a that. Mm. And and we need the scale that agri- that industrial agriculture and high technology provides. We absolutely need that. And you know, I work with this organization uh, called Seed Voyage in Guelph that connects. Uh, willing consumers with people with backyard gardens that may have too many zucchinis or mm. snap peas at one mm-hmm. point in the year and, and tries to smooth that system out. And yeah. I, I think you'll get some modest, some modest, reasonable gains out of that. And there's a space in the ecosystem, the food ecosystem for that kind of, of, of project. And, mm. and like I said, I work actively with, um, with, with organizations like that. So I, I think we can probably have uh, have both a small scale agricultural system based around, you know, people's backyard gardens mm. and we can have vertical farms in downtown Toronto. And heck, we could even have a vertical farm in downtown Toronto that's next to a, mm. a farmer's market or a community supported agricultural scheme. Um in a in a in a parking lot because it provides green space and and a place for passive rec or active recreation in, in a city and and I think if you take a, a portfolio approach, um, you you don't necessarily have to have a fight between these two camps. Although I very much take Lenore's point that we do not want to romanticize mm. uh, an agrarian background. Right. I mean, I said no to the farm because frankly it was hard work and you couldn't make any money on it, and uh, that <laughs> yeah. was a good decision for me. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's so true. <laughs> and I hear both of you what you're saying, so I appreciate both those those uh, perspectives completely. I guess I was trying to to latch onto that idea about more local grown and uh, just doing a little bit of that for yourself. Like you said, Lenore, you do it yourself and, and it, it's just, uh, you know, it doesn't answer all the questions and it doesn't supply all the food, but it's nice to be able to, to do that uh, to some degree. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I, the only reason it makes me nervous is increasingly in the media, there's almost a moral imperative mm. being put upon it. Mm. And I mean, I do several things that I do for fun. I grow a little food in the garden up on the farm. And uh, I also ballroom dance. And I don't really think either one of them is morally superior to the other. But uh, it there, there occasionally is some language around small is beautiful, small is better. Well, no, small is just small. And um, it has a place, but we have to be a little careful 
we don't vilify the efficiency of doing things at scale. Perhaps if we are able to reduce the footprint with the amount of space that we're using right now for animals, for grazing, for the growing the food and all those kind of things, it sounds like it could help greatly also in terms of the environment and with the, the carbon footprint that is currently being used and help to reduce the, the gases and, and get lower the temperature back of the planet once again, uh, that maybe we wouldn't have to be looking to Mars uh, as Elon Musk is saying, that's our salvation to look out there. We could, we could why not just focus? right here we already got a planet to live on so well maybe developing the technologies to live on mars will actually develop the systems we need on earth to right. survive right. I, I like what you said david about about reducing environmental footprints and greenhouse gases and stuff um yeah i totally agree with that and uh, and and yourself i think it could be a much greener future and i remain really optimistic about what's happening in the agricultural sector Great. Well, we'll have to leave it there. It's been a real pleasure speaking with both of you. And I look forward to following up with you, if you don't mind, because I think if we are going to see this rapid change taking place, uh, there's probably a further conversation to be had. Well, we've got a book coming out about space food next year, so watch (laughs) watch this space. (laughs) Okay, we'll look for that as well. Thank you both for taking the time to join us on the show. Take care. Thank you. All right. You too. Bye-bye. They're the voices of Dr. Lenore Newman and Evan Fraser. It's been a pleasure having them on the show talking about their article written in The Conversation, which you can go and check out. It is entitled Three Technologies Poised to Change Food and the Planet. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.